Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. All atheistic evolution is, is an attempt to explain away the existence of God. And so when Christians then become theistic evolutionists who say, well, God used evolution, uh, let me tell you, it's my basic thesis when I debate creation versus evolution. If evolution occurred, it would still need God. Because, you see, evolution violates even known scientific laws. So there, there has to be a miracle-working God to supersede those natural laws. That's what a miracle is, the superseding of natural laws. So if evolution occurred, you still need God to supersede those natural laws, such as something coming from nothing, life coming from non-life, multi-celled animals coming from single-celled animals, animals with backbones coming from animals without backbones, you know, right on down the line, the relationship between birds and reptiles and finally men coming from apes. Every one of those violates the law of biogenesis. Life coming from non-life violates the spontaneous, uh, it's spontaneous generation. It violates um, uh, the law of biogenesis as well. The cell theory is violated. So basically, if evolution is true, it would still need God. But if God exists, then... If God exists, then basically, he, if he used evolution, he covered his tracks. Because the evidence is just not there. Uh, and so basically, there is no real evidence for evolution. And these two doctrines, Christians should not compromise whatsoever on the doctrine of the Trinity, that there is only one God who eternally exists as three equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the doctrine of creation by God. We are His creatures, and we are, were created to fellowship with Him. And unless we fellowship with God by finding Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we will never find the true meaning to life. Uh, next week we'll pick it up with the Bib what the Bible teaches about itself, and then we'll go on to salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we thank you that you cared enough not only to save us, but to also reveal truth to us from your word. I just pray, Lord, that we would not handle your word lightly, but that we would diligently study your word so that we would accurately uh, divide the word of truth. Lord, I pray that if there's any person here that has never asked your son Jesus to be their savior, that they would repeat this, these words after me. And for the rest of us who already believe, I pray that we also would mouth these words just to recommit our lives to your Son, Jesus. Lord, I know that I am a sinner and that I cannot save myself. But I know that your Son, Jesus, became a man and died on the cross for my sins. He took my punishment for me. I now ask Jesus to save me and to forgive me and to become the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, by the way...
probably to the rear of the, the building. The elders are going to be back there. If you need prayer after church, we're going to be praying for some people after church. Just, just swing back there and see us. God bless you. You can go to a church down a block, and they might worship di- different. They might, the preacher might preach a little different than me. You know, he might not speak early colonial English. Um, they might sing different. They might hoot and holler more than we do or whatever. But if it's a Bible-believing church, they're in agreement with us on these basic Christian beliefs. And they worship the same King, the Lord Jesus Christ our great God and Savior. And so these basic Christian beliefs are very important. These are the, the foundational beliefs that define us as Christians. Extremely important beliefs. And today I want to talk about the Bible. Now, if you look on your handouts, there's four key words when we study about what the Bible teaches about the Bible. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time today to give evidence for the Bible is God's Word. Uh, if, you, if you want to uh, get into that area uh, of knowledge, we have audio cassettes on that that deal with that, the evidence for the Bible is God's Word. But today I want to talk about four key teachings that the Bible gives us about itself. Number one, inspiration. Number two, inerrancy. Number three, canonization. And number four, authority. And so let's take a look at these. First, inspiration. All inspiration means is that God guided or inspired human authors to record His Word without error. God didn't dictate it to them, so they just sat there and wrote down what he said, but he inspired them. He moved them within their hearts, within their being. In Paul's writings, Paul's personality comes out. Paul's a little more abrupt than the Apostle John. John's a lot more gentle in his writing. Their personalities came out, but the fact remains, even though their personalities were there and it came from their heart, It was God inspiring them to record His Word without error. That's what inspiration means. Take a look at 2 Timothy, chapter 3, and verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul is writing to a young preacher named Timothy that Paul himself had schooled. And Paul says this, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This is telling us right here, that Scripture, the word there in the Greek is graphe. Over and over again, it, it, what it means is the kind of the sacred writings of God. But it says all Scripture is inspired by God. Inspired is the word. Uh, inspired by God is uh, theopneustos in the Greek. It literally means God breathed. Okay. 
It's like if I say something, it's like I'm breathing my words out. It's the word of Philip Fernandez. I'm breathing it out right through my lips, okay? But the Bible is God breathing His words out to us. That's what inspiration means. God guiding and inspiring human authors to record His word without error. Now it tells us because the Bible is the word of God, it is profitable for teaching. That's why I'm not here with the Bremerton Sun. Every once in a while, you know, maybe I'll quote from the Bremerton Sun just to show you how far off base the world has gotten. But I'm not preaching from the Bremerton Sun. I'm not preaching from Sigmund Freud. I'm not preaching from Socrates, Plato, or Aristotle. We're preaching from the Word of God because it is profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction. If you're doing something and the Word of God says, thou shalt not do it, you need to be corrected by the Word of God. Uh, and for training in righteousness, it tells us that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You don't need the Bible plus Sigmund Freud to live a wholesome life. The Bible has all that is needed to make us adequate and equipped for every good work. So we don't need the Bible plus Sigmund Freud or the Bible plus Rogers or uh, whatever psychologist is out there. Take a look at Second uh, Peter. Still talking about inspiration. Second Peter, chapter one, verses twenty and twenty-one. And that reads, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Now it tells us here, the Apostle Peter tells us, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. What he's, what he's saying is, you can read the writings of Plato and the writings of Aristotle, and that, those are the, a man's, a human's interpretation of reality. He looks at reality, looks at the physical world that we live in, he speculates, is there life after death, that type of thing. And it's a man's, it's a way a man interprets, a way a man reads reality. Well, Peter is telling us, when you read the Bible, you're not reading the Greek philosophers. You're not reading the views of Plato. You're not reading the views of Aristotle. You're not reading the mere interpretations, the mere opinions of men. You're reading the truth, the Word of God. And so he makes it very clear, it's just not a matter of one's own interpretation but it is an act of human will. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. God moved within their being and inspired them, guided them to record His truths without error. When man speaks, it's just man's opinion. It could be right, it could be wrong. Most of the time it's probably wrong. But when God speaks, He speaks truth, period. God cannot be mistaken. So that's inspiration. God guiding human authors to record His Word without error. Now, inerrancy, 
Inerrancy focuses on the without error, the last two words of inspiration. Inerrancy is a teaching that the Bible is completely without error. The Bible is totally true, totally pure. The Bible uh, is infallible, if you will. Take a look at Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs 30. And verses 5 and 6. And that reads, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, lest He reprove you, and you be proved a liar. Now it says there, every word of God is tested. That's the New American Standard. I believe the New International Version, it's every word of God is pure. And... Oh, oh is, is flawless? Okay. And then in the King, King James and the New King James, is every word of God is pure. Okay? Which is right. The, 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 the fact is they're all right. The Hebrew language paints a picture with words, very poetic language. That was the Old Testament. The New Testament is very analytic. The Greek, Koine Greek, very analytic. It's very specific with their words. The English language is just kind of like baby talk nowadays. It's, it's not as specific as the Greek, and it's not as poetic as the Hebrew. But here, the, the one word that's being translated, tested in one translation, flawless in another, pure in another, what it basically means is the Word of God has been tested, and it has passed the test, and it has proven itself to be totally pure and without flaw. And so it's pretty tough to decide, well, are we going to emphasize the tested aspect or the pure aspect or the without flaw? But it's all brought out. It's like, it's like King David when he tried on Saul's armor. It wasn't tested. He didn't test it out. He didn't work it to, to make sure it was without flaw, that he could feel comfortable with it. So he decided not to use it. But God's Word has been tested. I mean, there are guys that have been trying to destroy this book ever since Moses penned the first five books. But it's still here. Who was it? it was, I, I can't remember if it was Voltaire or if it was Rousseau. Some uh, skeptical philosopher argued that uh, 50 years from that day, or 100 years from that day, um, there would be no more Bibles in existence. It would be so outdated. Man will have grown up intellectually to where he realized the Bible was a book of fairy tales. A hundred years from that day, Voltaire, some of Voltaire's works were selling for 15 cents a piece and uh, long out of print, um, whereas the Word of God was still by far the bestseller. And the Bible is, has been the bestseller throughout all time. Uh, and by the way, there have been guys who have tried to burn and destroy every last Bible there was. Before Constantine professed faith in Christ, uh, the Roman emperors... Uh, we're declaring that you were to destroy every Bible that was around. This book has been attacked more than any other book in history, and it's still the all-time bestseller. But the Word of God has been tested, and it has been proven to be without flaw. Therefore, it is a shield to those who take refuge in God's Word. Uh, 
John 17 and verse 17. Jesus is praying to the Father. John 17 and verse 17. In Christ's prayer, he says this, Sanctify them, his apostles, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. And what he's saying is, whatever word God speaks, it is truth. God cannot lie. He is truth. And we've already shown that the Bible, the Scriptures, are the Word of God. And now Jesus says the Word of God is truth. And we don't have time to turn there, but in John chapter 10, verse 35, Jesus says that the Scriptures cannot be broken. What he's talking about is God has said it, it is true. The argument is over. The Scriptures cannot be broken. So throughout the Scriptures, this claim comes over and over again that the Bible is completely without error. So the Bible was inspired by God. It is the Word of God. And as the Word of God, it is without error. It is inerrant. But the question comes up, which books belong in the Bible? It's one thing to say that the Bible is God's Word, but it's another thing to say, well, how do we know that the Gospel of John belongs in the Bible? And that's a pretty good question because there's 66 different books that make up the Bible, and they were written over a period of 1,500 to 2,000 years from men who had different jobs, different, uh, dif different occupations in different parts of the world at times. And so how do we know that all of those 66 books belong in the Bible and maybe not a few more, or maybe not a few less? Uh, this question, which books belong in the Bible, is called canonization. Canonization. A canon is a standard. And so canonization is finding which books meet up to this standard so they can be considered part of the Word of God. Now, there were three basic tests for canonization for both the Old and the New Testament. Uh, the first was a question. Was this particular book in question written by an authoritative spokesman of God? In other words, did the guy who write that book... Has God already revealed to the people that this man speaks for him? He is a true prophet of God and not some flake down the block who's teaching some heresy. So was it written by an authoritative spokesman for God? Uh, in other words, was it written by an apostle or a prophet? Or was it written by somebody who knew personally an apostle or prophet and did he have put his stamp of approval on it? That's what that question uh, deals with. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 2. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Paul says this, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Paul's talking about the church, and he says that the church has been built upon the foundation that was laid by the apostles and the prophets. Basically, what he's saying is that God has spoken through the apostles, those who were sent forth. An apostle is one sent forth with a message with the authority of the one who sent them. It's a military term. Uh, it's, the illustration I, I often give there is if a, if a private tells a three-star general it's time to, it's a time to attack, the three-star general is going to tell him to get lost. But if a four-star general sends the private in his name with an order from the four-star general to command the three-star general to attack, that three-star general is going to listen to the private. It's the same way with the apostles. The apostles were sent forth by Jesus with his authority. And uh, that's what an apostle is. A prophet is a true spokesman for God who proclaims the word of God. And Paul is saying that the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In other words, the church is built upon the teachings of the true representatives of God. Uh, take a look at John chapter 14, verse 26. John 14 and verse 26. Now, Jesus taught these guys for three and a half years. There was an all, awful lot of teaching that went on during those three and a half years when Christ was with the apostles. John 14, verse 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And we could say, well, what if the apostles remembered incorrectly something that Jesus said and wrote it down. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would guide them into all the truth, John 16, 13, and He would bring to their remembrance, this passage that we looked at here, bring to their remembrance all that He said to them so that when they recorded His teachings, they would record them without error. Take a look at John 15, verses 26 and 27. When the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. And you, the apostles, will bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning. We are witnesses of Jesus to the lost. We are witnesses of Jesus to the unsaved, but not to the same degree and not with the same authority that the apostles had. Because the apostles, unlike us, were with Jesus from the beginning. He started his ministry when he was baptized uh, by uh, John the Baptist. And the Holy Spirit came upon him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That's when he started his public ministry. Well, it was a bunch of guys hanging out with John the Baptist, listening to his teachings. He was their rabbi. And John said, hey, don't follow me anymore, follow him, he's the Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so they left John the Baptist and they started following Jesus. Well, most of these guys were the, the first apostles. 
Okay? Uh, they were with Jesus from the beginning. The Holy Spirit promised to bring to their... Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would bring to their remembrance all that Jesus taught them. He would guide them into the truth. And so Jesus uh, promised that these authoritative spokesmen for him would deliver his teachings to them in a pure manner, to, to, to the world in a pure manner. In fact, I wasn't planning on covering it till later, but take a look at Mark chapter 13. Mark 13 and verse 31. Jesus says, uh, says something here real simple, but yet it's real profound. Often it seems that the most simple statements are the most profound. Mark 13, verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus here is promising to preserve his word. Heaven and earth someday are going to be destroyed, and then Jesus is going to have to create a new heavens and a new earth. However, the words of Jesus are going to be preserved. How is he going to preserve them? He already told us in John 14 and 15. With his authoritative witnesses, those who were with him from the beginning, the apostles, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's going to guide them into all, their, all the truth, bring to their remembrance what Jesus taught them, and then they were going to record his teachings on paper so that from generation to generation, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, the carpenter from Nazareth, the one who claimed to be God in the flesh, his words would be preserved so that 2,000 years later, a half Italian, half Portuguese from New Jersey can get behind a pulpit and still teach the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. So that from pulpits throughout this country and throughout the world, the teachings of Jesus Christ would be preserved and so that the world would not be left without a witness. And so Jesus promised to preserve his word, and he did it through uh, the apostles. Look at Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. Verses 14 to 16. Peter says this, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. Now, the interesting thing here is Peter was one of the original apostles. Paul was not. Paul refers to himself as one untimely born. He wasn't one of the original apostles. Instead, he was a persecutor of the church. And then after Jesus' ascension to heaven, Paul got saved when Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road. And then Jesus appeared to Paul several other times. So Paul said, I didn't get my gospel from the original apostles. I got it directly from Jesus. So Paul, though not one of the original twelve apostles, 
was an apostle to the Gentiles, was the apostle to the Gentiles on the same level of authority as the other apostles, though not one of the original twelve. Well, here Peter says that he recognizes, he's talking about Paul's letters, Paul's writings, and he says some untaught, unlearned men distort his complex teachings as they do with the rest of scriptures. Peter is saying, you know that guy Paul, that complex theologian? He's also recording the Word of God. He has the same authority from God that Peter, John, and the other apostles do. And so the first test for canonization was, was it written by an authoritative spokesman of God, a prophet or an apostle? I mean, even the Gospel of Mark was not written by an original apostle, but the early church recognized it as the Gospel of Peter. Because Mark got his Gospel from Peter because he, was a, he accompanied Peter when Peter went out preaching the Gospel. So that had the authority, apostolic authority behind it. The Gospel of Luke and Acts, also written by Luke, Luke got his most of his information from Paul. And then he also got some information from Peter, the first half of Acts, uh, and from the other apostles as well. And so he was recognized as, as having apostolic authority behind his writings. James and Jude, they were the brothers, the half-brothers of Jesus. They were recognized as uh, having the apostolic authority behind them since they grew up with Jesus and heard his teachings, even though they didn't believe until he rose from the dead. So was it written by an authoritative spokesman of God, a prophet, or an apostle? The second test for canonization uh, is a, a simple question. Did it, agree with previously, did it agree with previously recorded divine revelation? Now, the Mormons need to ask this question. Because the Bible says throughout there's only one God. And then in their later writings... They teach that there's many gods, and that Mormon men can become gods someday. Well, if God wrote this, the Bible, and they agree that he did, then any future revelation, if it's tested, supposed future revelation, if, it's, if it contradicts what God already revealed, then what does that tell you? It tells you that you have false prophets out there with false teachings who are not teaching the true word of God. So the question, did it agree with previously recorded divine revelation? Now the question comes up, well, you couldn't ask that about the first books that were put in the Bible. And that's correct, you couldn't, because they were the first books written, there was nothing to compare it to. But keep in mind what God did with the first five books of the Old Testament, written by Moses. He confirmed it by signs and wonders. I mean, it was obvious that Moses was God's prophet. I mean, if you opposed him, if you opposed his authority, weird things would happen. The earth would swallow you up. That's kind of a hint from God that maybe you should have listened to him, okay? There was this thing called the ten plagues in Egypt, where God did all kinds of miraculous things. The Jews would say glorious things. The Egyptians would say nasty things, okay? Different perspectives there because one of them is on the receiving end. Uh, the, the ten plagues, the, the parting of the Red Sea. 
Let me tell you, Moses parts the Red Sea and the Israelites go, go off on dry land and the Egyptians all get drowned. That says something. That says something not only, only to the Jews, it says something to the Egyptians. Because the overriding message, you know, I could see the Jews just looking at, at the Egyptian armies drowning in the Red Sea as God closed the Red Sea back up. I could see them saying, you know, my God is bigger than your God. The God of Israel is greater than the gods of Egypt. My God is bigger than your God. First five books of the Bible, the Old Testament, confirmed by signs and wonders. And then God was, there was 400 years after the Old, so everything else had to agree with it. Or it would be rejected. And then, 400 years of silence... The end of the Old Testament to the start of the New Testament, and all of a sudden God's doing a new thing. There's a baby born in a manger. God's doing a new thing. Little creature, little baby, who just happens to be the Creator Himself. And He dwelt among us, became one of us, ate with us, talked with us, walked with us. God was doing a new thing, so what did He do? He broke out the signs and wonders again. And he confirmed the New Testament message right in the midst of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and confirmed the uh, authority that the apostles had with the tremendous signs and wonders that he performed through them. And so did it agree with previously recorded divine revelation? Look at Jude, verse 3. Jude, verse 3. Jude writes this, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, the Bible wasn't completely written yet. You still had a few books by John that were written after Jude wrote. So it wasn't completely written yet. He said the faith had been once for all already delivered to the saints. So what he's saying is you've got to contend for that, fight for that. Yeah, if there's a few more books that need to be written, test them with the Scriptures. Test them with the faith that's already been delivered to the saints. And if it agrees with it, then you have the added revelation that came, the other books that came as well. Look at Galatians 1. Paul's letter to the Galatians. Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Paul says this, For even though we, that's the apostles, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. Paul's saying, even test what I say, because if what I'm saying contradicts the true gospel, the true good news of God that teaches salvation through Christ alone, even if I teach something that disagrees with it, reject it. And so again, did it agree with previously recorded divine uh, revelation? Uh, Acts chapter 17 Acts 17, verse 11. This is about the Bereans. 
the Jews in Berea Acts 17 verse 11 now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica for they received the word with great eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so you know whose message they were testing they were testing the message of Paul and Silas so these guys are saying a new thing but if God's doing a new thing he would have predicted he was going to do a new thing in the Old Testament. So they tested what they were saying about Jesus with the Old Testament, and they found that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, that Jesus is, in fact, God and Savior, and they accepted it. But you see here, they were making sure that what Paul and Silas spoke, what, they, what Paul wrote, they were making sure that it agreed with previously recorded divine revelation. Uh, and then 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul's talking in verse 12. Remember, I, I stated the first five books of the Old Testament were confirmed by signs and wonders. Everything else had to agree with it. But the New Testament also was confirmed with signs and wonders. Paul talks about that. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. And so Paul is saying, you guys know I'm telling the truth because I have performed in your midst the signs of a true apostle, signs and wonders from God. So the first two tests for canonization are questions. Was it written by an authoritative spokesman of God, a prophet or an apostle? And did it agree with previously recorded divine revelation? Now, the third test was whether or not it was widely accepted by the redeemed. In the Old Testament, the, the Israelites, and the New Testament, uh, the church. Uh, and basically, they utilized the first two tests to decide whether or not they accepted it. So it kind of flows from the first two principles. Now, we already said that Jesus promised to preserve his word. And he preserved it uh, through uh, the apostles themselves. Uh, but the scriptures teach us that we should not add to or take from God's word. Revelation 22, we don't have time to turn there, 22 verses 18 and 19. John tells us there, now Revelation is the last book of the Bible. Revelation 22 is the last chapter in the last book of the Bible. It specifically applies to the book of Revelation, but you can apply it to the whole Bible as well. I think God uh, made in His sovereignty provided for this to occur. But He said that don't add to God's Word, or God will add the punishments of that book to you. And don't take from God's Word, or God will take from His blessings from you. And so we should not add to or take from God's Word. Now we know that God's revelation is not continuing because our faith is founded on what the teachings of, of infallible popes no our faith is founded on what the living prophets of the mormon church no our faith is founded on the apostles and the prophets and the apostolic age is over and so now if some guy gets up on channel 20 or if some guy gets up behind a pulpit like phil fernandez whatever he says you test it with the foundation of the church, 
the testimony left to us by the apostles and the prophets. So that's canonization. Now what I want us to do is just look at two verses that will discuss the issue of authority. Authority. We said that the Bible was inspired by God, that is, it is inerrant, without error. We talked about which books belong in the Bible, canonization. And now we need to talk about the Bible. God's Word is the ultimate authority. And the decisions that we make, everything must be tested with God's Word. Look at uh, Psalm 1. Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. The law of the Lord, or the law, is reference to the Old Testament Scriptures. It's reference to the Word of God. The man who is blessed of God is the man who meditates. His mind dwells on God's Word day and night. And his delight comes from the law of the Lord rather than from the counsel of the wicked. And one more passage, Proverbs chapter 3 and verses 5 to 7. Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Let's basically say, look, if we're going to trust in the Lord with all our heart, if God wrote to us a, a love letter that was 66 books long, if you're going to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but you're going to acknowledge His ways, then you're going to have to acknowledge the Bible, which is the inspired Word of God recorded for us without error. So that this is the ultimate authority in our life. If somebody says, oh, homosexuality, there's nothing wrong with it. If the Word of God calls it sin. If the Word of God calls it abomination. If the Word of God says it will defile your nation. I don't care about you. But the issue is settled. Because God has spoken. If people are going around saying it's alright to have abortions. It's all right to kill babies before they're born if the Word of God says that we're humans from the moment of conception because David was sinful from the moment he was conceived, Psalm 51.5. If God has spoken, that's it. The argument's over for Phil Fernandez. You can plug my body, fill with holes, and shoot me. You can take a baseball bat to my head. You can kill me, but I will die for this book because my God has spoken. And when my God speaks... He speaks without error, and He guides me into green pasture, and He gives me joy and peace in the midst of a world of turmoil. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, once again, we thank You for Your Word. And Lord, I just pray that we would never, ever, ever take Your Word lightly. I pray, Lord, that uh, as a pastor of this church, that you would constantly remind me over and over again that my job primarily is to get my face and keep my face in your book, 
study your word day and night to hear from you, to hear your voice in a much louder way than the voices from this world. To know your truths rather than the falsehoods that the world tries to cram down our throats. So I pray, Lord, that I would be in the Word and get grounded in the Word so that I could teach people in this church to be grounded in the Word and to never take lightly Your Word. For You are an awesome, all-powerful God, and Your Word is truth. Lord, I pray for the people in our church that You would make them not only students of the Word, but teachers of the Word, who not only teach just the people in this church, but they would go out and teach their neighbors about Jesus and teach their friends and their co-workers and their relatives. And so I pray, Lord, that Trinity Bible Fellowship would be a church that would never, ever downplay Your Word, but would, you, would proclaim Your Word with every breath of life that we have. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today who's never asked Your Son Jesus to be their only Savior. I just pray, Lord, that they would recognize that we're all sinners. Every one of us here, every person on earth, every person who ever lived except the carpenter from Nazareth, every person who ever lived except Jesus deserved the flames of hell because we're sinners who've rebelled against the holy God. None of us deserve heaven. We all deserve the flames of hell. But You sent Your Son to become a man and to die on the cross for our sins, so that if we would just trust in Jesus alone for salvation, He would save us and He would cleanse us from within. And so I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who's never asked Your Son Jesus to be their Savior, that they would do so right now. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. By the way, I'm going to ask after this service the, the elders uh, to...